Good morning. It is a joy and a humble opportunity to preach from God's Word in this pulpit, knowing that there are faithful men of God, pastors, elders who preach from this pulpit. So in light of that, uh, I'm here with fear and trepidation. Uh, so I think it's appropriate. Let's uh, open up first in a word of prayer. Father God, we're so thankful, Lord, for GBC Taylors. We're so thankful for all that you're doing in this congregation and in this church. Lord God, in this season, as we think about the incarnation, that Christ, that God the Son, full member of the Trinity, fully God, came down on earth, became fully man, lived a perfect life, to die on the cross as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Oh, Lord God, we are humbled by this truth. It leaves us sober. It leaves us also joyful and grateful for what you've done. Lord God, we pray as we look at our passages this morning that the celebration and the joy and the worship did not end with the last song that we sang, but Lord God, may our worship continue with joy, even with the hearing of your word of God being preached. Father, I pray, Lord, for your help, that you help me speak clearly, slowly, and biblically, and practically. But more important, that also it will be something that will be done as a worship that you will be pleased with. Lord, we are so sinful. I'm so sinful. I ask you for your grace, not only to be forgiven, to be saved, but Lord God, may your grace continue for us, for me to be able to serve your people. And also, Lord, that you sanctify your people as well with this message. I pray if anyone here does not know you, speak to them clearly this marvelous passage and the marvelous prophecy from your word. Oh, Lord God, be with us in your presence here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It is a joy to be able to open the word of God. And what I'm going to be preaching from will be from Genesis 3.15, but it, this is a little different than the normal message that I've done in the sense that I usually preach verse by verse. But what I'm kind of doing is almost as if it's in some ways a survey, at least, of the first half of Genesis. Genesis 3.15, I'm going to read from this passage first, and I think this is a marvelous prophecy. What Pastor Jamie has alluded to earlier, the first time the good news, the gospel in incipient form has been given to us. Genesis 3.15, I'll just read this passage real quick, briefly. In the context, there was the fall of man, fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. They were tricked by the serpent. God, in Genesis 3, towards this last half, is pronouncing his words of judgment. But in the midst of these words of judgment, I think there is a ray of gospel hope in Genesis 3.15. This is what the passage says. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. That is what the Word of God says, my translation with the New American Standard Bible. And I think today, as we look at this, I think there is a message of the of a coming hope of a Savior. And I think the first hope of this is actually found in Genesis 3.15, and I titled today's message, Christmas in Genesis. Christmas in Genesis. And my main point in looking at this passage, and I think to make my case that this is the first hope of the gospel, first hope of Jesus Christ as Savior coming to us, I'm going to make this point 
From the context of Genesis, if you're going to be tracking with me, if you're taking notes, we're going to have four points for today's message. Four points for today's message. We're going to look back, uh, in kind of a strange order. Again, this is not my typical uh, way I preach, but we're going to be looking in Luke and then coming back to Genesis. So these are the four points if you're taking notes. Point number one. Point number one. Young or old should know the Old Testament expectation of the Messiah. Young and old should know the Old Testament expectation of the Messiah. We're going to look at Luke chapter 1, verse 46 to 55 to establish, to anchor that first point. Let me repeat again. Young and old should know the Old Testament expectation of the Messiah. This is found in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 50. And then point number two, then we'll go back to the book of Genesis, if you're taking notes. Point number two, the expectation of the coming Messiah with Adam and Eve. The expectation of the coming Messiah with Adam and Eve. We're going to go back to look at Genesis 3.15 in its more immediate context, okay, with that. The expectation of the coming Messiah with Adam and Eve. That's point number two. Point number three is the expectation of the Messiah with Lamech. Lamech. The expectation of the coming Messiah with Lamech, and this is later on in the book of Genesis. And then point number four, the expectation of the coming Messiah with Noah, with Noah. I'm just going to repeat these four points one more time just for those that are taking note. Point number one, young and old should know the Old Testament expectation of the Messiah. Point number two, the expectation of the coming of the Messiah with Adam and Eve. Point number three, the expectation of the coming Messiah with Lamech. And point number four, the expectation of the coming Messiah with Noah. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at our first point, that young and old should know the Old Testament expectation of the Messiah. I love the music that we've just heard. In fact, I believe sermon preparation did not end during the night on Saturday when the final outline is done. But I think sermon preparation really ends with the music and the song that we sing right before the preacher preaches. And I was blessed to hear the songs that we sing, classic songs about the incarnation, classic truth of Christ coming on earth to be born, to eventually die and be our Savior. And these are songs we sing both young and old. And I want to establish point number one, that young or old, we should all know Old Testament expectation of the Messiah, that these are things we as Christian families should share with our children, grandchildren, or great-great-grandchildren. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1, verse 46 to 55. I'm going to read this briefly. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regard for the humble state of his bondservant. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with great good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And in context, this is Mary singing, Mary, the mother of Jesus, singing a song in worship of God. And I think when we look at this passage, we see that young or old, we should all know and study 
the Old Testament and know the Old Testament well enough to even know the passages that the Messiah will come and die for our sins, that the Messiah will be born and to be fully man and to die for our sins. I want to make this observation. If you look real quick with me in verses 50, notice in some of your Bible that it might be all caps, all capitalized letters, and that's actually a way that the uh, translation for some of your version is indicating this is an Old Testament quotation. This is an Old Testament prophecy or correction, Old Testament reference. If you look at verse 50, it says, and his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. Now, remember the context. Who is singing here? This is Mary, a young girl. And in that culture, very likely, as we see even in other parts of the world in some of those in this church that you guys support for the cause of missions, you know that sometimes in other parts of the world, in the agriculture society, people often get married much younger, probably more younger than those in the city of Greenville or other urban areas. And this is a young woman. She might perhaps marry be in her teens, now, I'm not going to say this dogmatically because the scripture does not say, but knowing what we know of background, here's this young girl, and notice her theology is so rich that when she sings to God in praise, knowing that she is going to give birth to the Messiah, she can't help but to sing and worship God, but her singing, the contents and her lyrics are actually biblically rich. To such a point that in verse 50, she even quotes from Psalm 103, Verse 17, she quotes the Old Testament. Now, she's a young woman. She's not necessarily biblically seminary trained. So the question is, how did she know the scriptures? Very likely she knew from her family and maybe from her synagogue. What we see here, it's very clear that whether you are young or old, we should know the Old Testament and know the Old Testament in regards to the prediction of the Messiah. And by the way, when she's singing this in the context, she's also talking to an older woman of God, an older woman of God named Elizabeth, who is going to pour into her, have a personal discipleship, as both are miraculously pregnant. Elizabeth, who is an older woman of God, who was at one point barren, is now a child, who we know later on will be, give birth to someone that is known as John the Baptist. And here we see Mary's also miraculously with child. But her miracle is beyond anything that has ever happened in history before. She is a virgin, and she's bearing a child, and a child who will eventually be, who is, excuse me, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Look with me also as well. If you're seeing, look at just the richness of what it is she's seeing. Look at verse 47. She talks about God my Savior. She knows that God is her Savior. And even, how does she know this? Perhaps it's all the Old Testament verses that she's grown up, that people have poured into her, have taught her. Even what Jamie, Pastor Jamie Howell read earlier from the Psalms. We see these predictions of Scripture. Even earlier this morning for Sunday school, we've looked at the Psalms of even the fact that God is Savior. So she sings this, that God is Savior. Notice also in verse 55, she says, as he spoke to our fathers, that is the forefathers, she knew that God's word has spoken to the patriarchs. How does she know this? Perhaps others have teach her, but they've taught her based upon what? The word of God, which in this context, there's no New Testament yet. It is the, what we would call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. 
Mary not only studied these, but applied the deep things of God. And her first application is how? She was singing with praise to God. And then we also see she applied this a second way, explicitly. Look at verse 48. For he had regarded, he had regard for the humble state of his bondservant. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. She realized the Old Testament scriptures of the coming Messiah and realized she is nothing merely more than a humble servant, and she is marveling that God has given her this great responsibility, yes, but privilege to bear the child that will be the savior of this world. And she realized she is blessed. It is nothing of her merit. And recognized that from on, all generations, our word will count her blessed. Not because she merited, but because of God's grace to this humble woman to give birth to the Messiah. I bring this as application for our first point is to say that everything I'm going to say with point two, point three, and four is truth. Listen, that is not only for us here, but even for our children, who perhaps at this moment is in Sunday school, or perhaps even for our grandchildren, that in this season, with the holiday season, with Christmas, when people are willing to hear Merry Christmas, when people perhaps might be a bit more open socially and culturally to hear what Christ is, Christmas is about and about Christ, that we should definitely take advantage of this to share, whether young or old, of the Old Testament prophecies to point towards Christ. Let's now turn back with me to Genesis 2. If that's point number one, we will see the application that we should know this, and definitely we should shepherd even in our family devotions, family worship to share this with our children, or evangelistically. If that's point number one, point number two is this, the expectation of the coming Messiah with Adam and Eve. The expectation of the coming Messiah with Adam and Eve. Turn back with me to Genesis 3, verse 15. Again, point number two, the expectation of the coming Messiah with Adam and Eve. I think the very first human beings that expected the coming Savior, that expected Jesus Christ, was none other than Adam and Eve. And I think that because of the text of what is said, the words itself in Genesis 3.15, and also the immediate surrounding context of Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 3.15, right before this in 3.14, you see, in Genesis 3.14, you see that God is speaking, and God speaks to the serpent, which later in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, we know this is not just an ordinary snake, but this is actually the serpent of old, which is Satan himself. That's John's interpretation. That's God's word interpreting Genesis 3. That's an infallible commentary on Genesis 3. And God pronounces condemnation upon Satan. But in the midst of this condemnation, in verses 15, he talks to the woman. And I think this is actually a great hope we see this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That is between Satan and Eve. And as it goes on, it says, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So you see that there's going to be a conflict, a battle, a cosmic battle of sorts that will take place between Satan and Eve as humanity. But also pay attention to the word seed. It is interesting that when it says her seed, it is a fascinating thing that we pay attention to the grammar. The word seed here, when it's described, notice it's described possessively as 
her seed, belonging to her. When you look at the rest of the Old Testament scriptures, you'll never see the word her seed. In fact, it'll say a lot of times, if it's a possessive pronoun, it says his seed. I do want to keep this rated G for godliness, but I do want to talk a little bit about human anatomy, just briefly. Biologically, it is the men that have the seed, and it is not the women that have the seed. Women, biologically, would say, possess egg. And yet we see in this passage where no other places in the scripture does it ever say her seed. It always says a man's seed or his seed or someone's masculine name possessively as that person's seed. But here it says her seed. Now, either the Old Testament and Moses, when he wrote Genesis, did not know basic human biology, or there's something that is going on here that is very amazing and miraculous. And I actually think they do know basic biology because the rest of Genesis, you'll see every time seed is mentioned, it's described as possessively belonging to that of a man. So I think what is going on here is that there is this promise of a miracle that one day God will bring about someone that will be the seed that will save us from our sins, that will reverse the curse. But this person being born will be supernatural and will not be brought about with the help of any man. But a woman will be bearing a child and that child will be her seed and not his seed. And I actually think when you look at this, I actually think this is the foundation head. This is the, this is the, the fountainhead that where we see Isaiah 7, 14, the prediction of this marvelous prediction that a woman will one day behold bearing a child, a, a virgin would even give birth to a child that eventually will be the same. This is the hope of even Isaiah 9, 6, where this child that will be born will be mighty God himself, where the government will be on his shoulders, who will he be eternal God. Where did Isaiah had all this foundation from? Did he, God speak to him supernaturally? Yes, he did. But I do believe, as you see the antecedent with a lot of Old Testament prophets, they also read and know previous revelation from Scripture. They knew the Old Testament writers before their time as well. And I think the fountainhead for Isaiah 7, 14, for Isaiah 9, 6, for other prophecies of the fact that the Messiah will be born in some supernatural way, it began here in Genesis 3, verse 15. In other words, in the very first book of the Bible, in the very first three chapters, in the third chapter of the first book of the Bible, you see the hope of the Messiah already. A virgin birth is predicted in some incipient, of all pun intended, in seed form is already existing in Genesis 3. Moreover, look with me in Genesis 4, verse 1. Genesis 4, verse 1. I'll just read this and then we'll exposit this. It says, Genesis, 3, Genesis 4, 1 says, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. This is point number, uh, still number one. We see this in Genesis 4, 1. I think there's something marvelous and amazing uh, that is mentioned here. Um, in Genesis 4, 1, what we see here after this great hope, you might say, how did Adam and Eve took this great hope? How did they interpret God's word that was just given 
of Genesis 3.15. I think Genesis 4.1 shows Adam and Eve's expectation in light of what God has delivered of the good news in Genesis 3. And while they're not fallible, or while they are fallible and they're not perfect, I think you see that there's an expectation of what God has given that they even expected that God would give birth to one of the seed of the woman one day who would even be fully God himself. Now, I have up here, I think it might be too small. I know, um, I think there's something interesting in the Hebrew. I really love my version in ASB that I use as my preference, but this is one of the few times I would probably say I would probably slightly disagree with the NASB. Um, in Genesis 4.1, after Adam and Eve had a child. Notice they named their firstborn. What did they name their firstborn? Help me out. You guys could answer me. Cain, okay? Which I think in Hebrew is interesting. It has a reference to spear. It has a reference to spear. And then when she conceived, she gave birth. Notice what she says in her speech. I've gotten a man-child. And in some of your version, in the NSB, it has an italics. It says the help of the Lord. Is to say that's, the italics is to say that's not actually in the original wording of the Hebrew, but they're putting this to try to help it out to interpret what is going on here. Now, in my interpretation of Genesis 4, and I think there are your pastors and other elders and others in seminary, and some of you guys perhaps know Hebrew, I think in Genesis 4, I actually think literally the way I would translate this, I've gotten a man-child, the Lord. Or to be very literal, I've gotten a man-child, Yahweh itself. And I know this is probably too small, but in the Hebrew there's an object marker, which is say this is the direct object, that I've gotten a child, Yahweh himself. In other words, what she's saying here is she thinks that she's given birth to a child, that it is actually God himself that has been born. Now, I do think she's wrong about Cain being the Messiah, because what happened a little bit in Genesis 4 is Cain would be the first what? Murderer. And he'll kill who? His brother named Abel. And by the way, the name of the second child is also interesting. The name of the second child in Hebrew is Havel. Or where you know in the book of Ecclesiastes, the phrase that's mentioned the most is what? Vanities, vanities, or breath, or fleeting. Which is what she, she, they named the second child. Could you imagine? This is the family that's born their firstborn. They name him Cain, Spear. And then the next child, somewhere down the road, they name him fleeting vanity now why is that i actually think what is going on here why they named the firstborn spear is i think it goes back to genesis three fifteen. they know that there'll be a seed of the woman one day who will crush satan and his seed and when they name the child they're thinking this is the one who spear satan himself now i think their expectation of how they interpret it is warranted in the sense this is legitimate to have an expectation of one day a child will be born of a woman that will crush Satan. But I think they applied it to the wrong referent. They thought their firstborn is the Messiah, is the Messiah. I know I have three daughters. I know sometimes when ministering in a church with um, young families in my previous ministry, everyone's firstborn, they're thinking this is child is like the most smartest, wisest, all of that. But I think literally Adam and Eve were expecting this will be the perfect Messiah. And then they're pretty soon disappointed in realizing this child sinned, just like Adam and Eve did, their fathers, they themselves did. 
And they realized, no, this is, maybe the Messiah is not going to come right away. And they saw the second born. Wow, there's also issues. And then they named him Vanities or Fleeting, Havel or Abel as we call it in English. So I think when you look at this context, just within the first four chapters, we see there's an expectation of a child that is to be born. Again, this is God himself saying in Genesis 3.15 that will come from a woman supernaturally without the help of any man. And then in Genesis 4, you see there's also this expectation of Adam and Eve that this child being born will be also God. Now the question is, wait, is this Savior going to be fully man that is able to even be born and also fully God? Which one is it? And I would say the answer is yes. It is both. Fully God becoming fully man, even to be born of a woman, a human woman as well. So we see in point number one, the expectation of the Messiah with Adam and Eve. And we see this from the text, and I think what it is is, I think the Bible sometimes, when we look at it, is, um, I know this is probably showing that I was more of a 90s kid, where back when I was little, there's some books where you kind of look at it, you stare at it, look at it, you move back, and after a while you see another image. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, I forgot what it's called, like 3D books and things like that. I think the Bible, listen, I think Genesis and the Old Testament is like that. That there's actually something legitimately, objectively speaking, authorial intent, something that is in the text that's predicting the Messiah, but we might pass it quickly if we're not careful. And it calls for us, listen, to pay attention to details with the scripture. So as application, are you at all with the word of God? Are you at all that within the first four chapters of the first book of the Bible, that there's an expectation of a miraculous virgin birth who the person born is also fully God and becoming fully man to be the one that will crush Satan and even to save us from our sin. By the way, when I teach this, uh, sometimes there's pushback and they say, this is, I've never, this sounds amazing if it's really true, but how do we know you're not crazy in your interpretation? Which I think is very important for point two, uh, point three and four to show that this interpretation, I think, is also consistent with everything else we see when it comes to other patriarchs with Lamech and also as well with Noah also as well. So as first, as application with the second point, are you at all with the scripture? And second application with point number two, when you, pay it, when you look at the scripture, do you savor to go into the details? Do you savor to go into the details? Making observations, looking at this. And I think as a third application, even as well, is also God is giving great gifts in this church. Great gifts. Men who are involved with seminary education, seminary level education, and seminary itself. Do you go to the people in the church that are teachers and ask them questions and learn and desire to even learn more from the scripture? And I think I'm very likely speaking to people that love the word of God. You're probably here among the options of many churches in Greenville. You came here to learn the word of God. And I want to encourage you, my brothers and sisters, continue to study the word of God because there's great, marvelous, gold nugget truths that points to us of the greatest story ever told. I truly believe that Old and New Testament is all about Christ. I am a firm believer that the Old Testament is. We must preach this in a Christ-centered way. And I also believe, objectively speaking, even authorial intent at times, 
they also were expecting the Messiah. Let's go to point number three. We see the expectation of the Messiah with Lamech. Turn with me now to Genesis 5. If you look in Genesis 5, we're going to look at verses 28 to 29. Genesis 5, verse 28 to 29. It says, Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Verse 29. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work, from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Looking at this in context, you see everything in Luke, correction, Genesis 5 earlier, there's a genealogy. There's genealogies saying who comes from who and then who's the genealogy. And I used to, as a young Christian, look at the genealogy, and I felt that was always the hardest. If, and this is not something wrong with God's word. This is something wrong with me. I used to look at the genealogy, and I thought, this is like reading the phone book, right? This is hard. And man, it's like reading First Chronicles at that time, this, the first eight chapters or so, that's like hard. But I also believe the genealogies is important for a reason. And that's actually to help us to eventually see the Messiah. Because if Adam and Eve had many children, where would the Messiah come from? Which line? And I think the genealogy is there to help us funnel down to see where the Messiah will be from. If you look at verses 28, when it talks about Lamech, notice it kind of breaks that expectation, the um, mode of the genealogy we see early in Genesis 5 by giving a little bit of a narrative of a story that when it came to Lamech of why he named his son Noah. And the fact that it makes break from this expectation of this literary form of the genre of what we expect of genealogy, I think that means maybe the name Noah is significant. And maybe why, this, as it says in verse 29, the reasons why he named Noah is also very significant. Now, Noah, I'm looking at this name. The name in Hebrew means comfort. It means comfort. And as you, perhaps we know, reading the scripture, sometimes the name has significance. The name has significance, even as we saw with Adam and Eve earlier. Now, why would he name his son Comfort? The reason is explained in verse 29 is because it shows there's certain expectation he has of his son Noah. It says, let me read this again. This one will come and comfort us. Again, there's a play on word. His name means comfort. It says, this one will come and give us comfort from what? As it goes on, from our work and from the hard labor of our hands caused by the ground which the Lord has cursed. Now, the Lord has caused it where because of the fall, agricultural work or work in general will be difficult, will be frustrating. And this is actually a reference. He's echoing Genesis 3, where God says that when you till the land, there'll be all these opposition and, and difficulty because the land has been cursed. And he looks at his son, Lamech looks at his son Noah and said, this one might be the one that will provide his comfort. Maybe this one that's born, he will reverse the curse itself. He will reverse the curse, curse itself. In other words, what this reveals is that this is many generations later, but yet with Lamech, perhaps they have been handed down by word of mouth, before the word of God is written at this time, by word of mouth from one generation to the next, there's this expectation that there will be born a seed of a woman 
and born of a seed and yet be fully God and will reverse the curse and also remove Satan's opposition as well. This is why he had this expectation. Now, we know later in redemptive history, in the unfolding of Genesis, was Noah the savior of the world? No. And why do we know he's not? Is because of his sin. If you guys could turn with me to Genesis 9, verses 20 to 24. You ever perhaps taught Sunday school to kids or family devotion with the story of, um, the story of Noah, with Noah's flood? And there's this bizarre part where it says about Noah got drunk without clothes and all of this. Now, why is that there? Now, non-believers could read that part and sometimes mock the Bible and says, well, see, the Bible is weird, it's awkward, this is why I don't believe in the Bible. But God's purpose sometimes, why he reveals the sin of people in the book of Genesis is to tell us they're not the Savior because they have fallen short. This great expectation of Noah, and yes, Noah was in some sense godly and was used by God. After all, his family was in the ark, and humanity continued because God has saved them and because he obeyed God and was a preacher of righteousness, as in the New Testament teaches, as Peter teaches in the New Testament. But yet, as great of a godly man as he was, was he perfect? No. And therefore, we know in Genesis 9 that he was not the Messiah. But yet at the same time, what are we to make with Lamech, with what we see earlier in Genesis 5, 20, 29? I think what it shows is there is a right expectation that there will be a Messiah that will come and reverse the curse, but they identified the wrong person. They had the wrong referent. If you guys can, turn with me real quick to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. This is what God's word says. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of this grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the suffering of Christ and the glories to follow. This passage tells us that Old Testament prophets there were things they knew, and there were things that they did not know. If you look at with me in verse 11, it indicates what they knew was that there will be a Christ that will suffer, that will also have glory to follow. But what they did not know, according to verse 11, is they did not know the exact person and also the exact time. So how I interpret what's going on in the book of Genesis is that Adam and Eve, yes, they were right to expect a seed of a woman, miraculous birth. They were right to expect that. They were right to expect God will become man, born of a woman. They were right to expect that the Messiah would come and reverse the curse of the fall. But they were wrong in regards to the person. No, it was not Cain. No, it was not, it was not Noah. They did not know who the person was, nor were they correct, nor did they know the time of when the Messiah would come. So as application with this point, with point number three, the expectation of the coming Messiah with Lamech, as we even, we look at the New Testament, the New Testament is like a searchlight. The New Testament helps us interpret the Old Testament. Amen? 
But the Old Testament is also a searchlight that shines to the New Testament. When we read the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how do we know Jesus is the Messiah? Because the Old Testament shine its light clearly on the Old Testament so that when we see the Old Testament, when we see the New Testament, when we see Jesus, we could say, we've been expecting you. Oh, great seed of Israel. Oh, great seed, right? The, the one of the hope of the mighty one of Israel, the God of God who became fully man, the Savior, the Son of David, to die and save us from our sins. Let's now go to our, if that's point number two, the expectation of the coming Messiah with Lamech, we now go to point number three, the expectation of the coming Messiah with Lamech. Turn with me, oh, correction, with Noah, I'm sorry, with Noah. Turn with me to Genesis 9, verse 26. Genesis 9, verse 26. Again, Genesis 9, verse 26. It says, he also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. We mentioned earlier in Luke chapter, correction, in Genesis 9, we saw the fall of how even the fall of Noah, that even Noah is sinful, that he's not perfect, that he could be drunk with wine also, and here in verses 25, you'll see in some of your version, it's indented. Verses 25 to 27, there's, in some sense, it's poetic. In some sense, I would even say when it's poetic here, it's actually making prophecies, prediction about his children and their progeny. Now, in verses 26, what we just read, if we give attention to details to the word, there's something marvelous and amazing that's going on. If you look at verse 25, notice he declares curse on Canaan. In verses 27, he talks about God enlarging Jephthah. You'll see that the kids, his three sons, are named in verses 25, 26, and 27. But when it comes to 26, there's something interesting. Whereas verse 25 talks about the children will be blessed from that line of his son, or, or correction, will be cursed. And then if you look at verse 27, Jephthah will be his line will be blessed. How? They'll be enlarged. They'll have many children. In verse 26, if you pay attention to details, it doesn't right away say Shem. It technically does not say Shem is blessed. But what it says is that God of Shem will be blessed. Now, will Shem's descendants be blessed? Yes. We'll later see in Genesis 12, one of his progeny will be named Abraham. And the, God's blessing will continue the program through Shem's line. But I want to call attention to the fact that details, it does not say Shem's son and descendants is blessed. That's not what it technically says. But it says here, the God of Shem will be blessed. Now the Lord God, the living God, Yahweh, is always blessed. And we want to bless his name through the means of worshiping him, giving him praise as our sacrifice. But I want to call attention to details that the hope that we saw earlier of even the fact that the Messiah will be born of a woman being fully God. This is not an accidental thing or incidental thing, but this is an expectation that even Noah, when he gives his predictions and prophecy, he was saying that Shem, the God of Shem will be blessed. I think what he's saying here is that Shem, line, God will come from his line. And what Jamie said earlier in the beginning, the first missions of all 
is God, fully God, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, came down on earth to, to live among us, to live among humanity and die for us. I think this hope of this incipient form began in Genesis, here where we see even when it says the God of Shem. Have you ever wondered when you look at Matthew, when you open the first chapter of Matthew, you see genealogy. I remember even taking classes where, you know, the English literature class, they often, or English class essay, they always say what? Your first opening, you want to have exciting to bring in your audience, to tell what it's about, but you want to draw your audience. And then you look at Matthew, it begins a list of genealogy, yes? The son of David, son of Abraham, and all of these it goes on. And you're thinking, why did God opening first time, God has not spoken for 400 years. The Old Testament, last revelation was 400 years before Matthew was written. And the very first time God speaks, he begins with a list of names. Now for us, if we read this without the Old Testament background, we would say genealogy might seem boring. But if you know the Messiah has been predicted will come from the line of Shem, what I think is going on here is God is funneling from all of many Abraham's kids, many sons of Shem. It's narrowing down, funneling down to the Messiah. What it is, in other words, is there's a big details. All the Old Testament are details revealing who the Messiah is. It's like you're looking at a book of Where's Waldo? You're looking at it, trying to find where is the Messiah coming from? And some people look like the Messiah in some ways, born of the son of David, etc. But like, no, this is not because there's all these details of Waldo. That does not fit. Same thing. The Old Testament gave all these predictions so to, we could look at this and say, the genealogy is important. What lineage he comes from. Things that, humanly speaking, no one controls who they're born to. All these things that we see of the Messiah is so that we could see that this is the Messiah. So that we can love him and trust in him. I used to work security in Hollywood. I used to work security in Hollywood. Where, um, where my boss always thought it was funny because I never know any celebrity. So when I was in seminary, when we worked at the red carpet event, my boss always thought it was so funny because I don't know any celebrity and I asked for identification for everyone, okay? <laughs> and there was one event, it was a red carpet, it was the Oscar, or not the Oscars, it was, the, um, it was a premiere for a movie and I was tunnel visioning because this was, I was checking people's bags when they were going in and everything. And usually where my line is, after the red carpet, when people take pictures of the celebrities, they will go one line where they just go straight into the theater, and everybody else, the producers and everyone else, go through another uh, set. And this one time, this one actress, she was the main part of the, she was the A star of the movie. Uh, she came in, and I was just tunnel vision. I'm not looking at faces, and I wouldn't even recognize her anyways. And when she came in, I realized, hey, where's your, like, credentials? You don't have any. And I just, in my earpiece, my manager, my boss, my supervisor were getting all my papers. Do not stop her. Do not stop her. Oh, Jimmy, what, what, James, what did you do? You just stopped her. And they all ran over to me and said, what did you do? We're going to lose our contract because you just stopped the main actress. And I was like, well, you guys know me. I don't know any celebrities. Like, movies ain't my thing. And they were saying, you know what? That's not the issue. If you look up, there's this, all those, you know, shining lights with everything, and there's a big billboard with the light shining all on her. She's right there. All you have to do is turn around and just look at what is behind you so you could identify who it is in front of you. And I was like, yeah, wow, what a, what a lesson. And you know what? That's the same way we look at the Old Testament. 
when we see the details of the prophecies in the book of Genesis itself, when you look at the rest of the Tanakh, the rest of the Old Testament scriptures, from Genesis to Malachi, you see the details of the Messiah that's to come so that when you read the New Testament, you would say, wow, what a marvelous truth that God was born through a virgin to be born in a town called Bethlehem, which was also predicted in the scripture, to show all of this, that this was nothing that should surprise us if we only just look back at what God's light shone so clearly that the Messiah has arrived. And what a marvelous joy we're born on this side of the cross, that we see things more clearly with the New Testament. And I hope you move, may this word of God move us to trust in Christ. And if you have not done so, trust in Christ today. Talk to your elders and talk to your pastors or your parents about trusting in Christ. And for all of us that are believers, continue to marvel and worship at our Savior. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Lord, we're so thankful for your marvelous word. Help us prepare our hearts at this moment for communion and to worship you. And the worship does not end with the ser- sermon, but continue for the rest of our service. Thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you for your word and the marvelous truth of your prophecies in the Old Testament. In Jesus' name we pray.